From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility, just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, we'll speak to the Conservative MP and Chair of the Commons Defence Committee, Tobias Elwood. And we'll be taking uh, a look at another aspect of the cost of living crisis, the effect on people's mental health. Uh, This with Connor Darcy from Money and Mental Health at Policy Institute at King's College. Well, the Prime Minister says it's time to move on from Partygate, but there's a drip drip of Conservative MPs still calling for his resignation. And any hope that Sue Gray's report might have been the end of the matter seems to have been evaporated. The Times says that 29 MPs have so far publicly called for him to go. The total number of letters actually submitted by MPs, well, of course, we don't know that. Well, something we do know, though, European Union leaders have agreed to ban the imports of most Russian oil, paving the way for a sixth package of sanctions to punish President Vladimir Putin for his invasion of Ukraine. Member states overcame objections from Hungary, which had been blocking an embargo with a temporary exclusion for oil coming by pipeline. Well, let's discuss today's big issues with our first guest, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East, Tobias Elwood. Tobias is chair of the Commons Defence Committee. Tobias, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, you've been very clear that you want Boris Johnson to go, but what's your reading of your colleagues? How close are we to those 54 letters? You know, it's very, very tough uh, for individuals to make that assessment, given the success that Boris Johnson has brought to the party. You know, we've had uh, a tough election, which we won with a large majority, a difficult couple of years over Brexit, which I know you've discussed many, many times. And he's the one that got us through through that. There are many MPs that uh, believe that they won their seat because of him. So to turn that around and to say, is he appropriate for the future battles, given how well he did in previous ones, that is a really, really tough call. But as we saw what happened in number 10, the, you know, the cultural lack of focus, lack of discipline, lack of, of leadership. Unfortunately, there has been a breach of trust with the British people, and that's proving very, very difficult to repair. And that's why more and more colleagues are making the assessment that tough though it is, you know, perhaps it's time that we do look elsewhere. Surely the mood within the party must be absolutely dire. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, but this isn't the first time that a party uh, in government has to go through this process. It's, if you like, in the unwritten small print that you, you, you must sign in the contract when you become uh, a member of, of parliament. And this is proving a distraction. I hear you know, the calls to say, let's move on. But there is a steady drumbeat of 
evidence and concern. Look at the local election results. We should have done much better than that. We lost a couple of flagship um, uh, councils, Westminster and Wandsworth in the centre of London and, and uh, elsewhere up and down the country. We've got two tough by-elections approaching uh, as well. So these are all indicators to say, uh, actually, I'm afraid the brand, the party brand itself, is, I'm afraid, being actually uh, disrupted and affected by Boris Johnson that was seen for so long as such a huge asset. If there is a vote, Johnson must be in with a good chance of getting 180 votes, mustn't he? That's half of Tory MPs. That's what he needs to survive a vote of no confidence. If that's the case, wouldn't that be a messy end to, to, to Rebels' plans to, to, to oust him? Well, this is all about what's best for the party, what's best for the country. How can we focus on the big economic challenges that you and your introduction raised? You've got Ukraine, the cost of living and so forth. These are the things that are important. It's very difficult to land these policies when there's a constant drumbeat of concern uh, to do with, with what's happened in this breach of trust. You want the nation to take difficult decisions and they won't respect or, or follow you uh, if they don't have confidence in you. And that's the challenge that we face. That's the dilemma. There's no doubt about it. I can look mm. back at some of these other times when in government, uh, a party has, has, has removed the, uh, the leader at the time. Margaret Thatcher, it wasn't many over half but she felt she'd lost the confidence of enough, including some of her front bench, that she did the honourable thing and stepped back. I mean, OK, do you really think that Boris Johnson would do that if that were the case? And who should be the next Tory leader? Well, two separate questions there. I think I agree with you on the first one. Um, there does need to be a momentum here. But you've got some, some of the church elders, if you like, the big beasts in our party, people like uh, Michael Howard, um, uh, William Hague and so on, also saying that this is, you know, a very, very difficult time. What you need, what we need to recognise is uh, uh, that we do have to embrace these difficult decisions. I would say on who next that there is plenty of talent there, but nobody's coming forward just yet because we are in that that middle transition period where people are just continuing to make up their minds. Andrea Ledsom, another very big um, player in the in the party, former member of the cabinet, has just come out herself. So here we go. It keeps on moving forward. Isn't the problem for potential rebels that there isn't really, though, a, a tried and tested candidate? And as you said at the beginning, Boris Johnson is, you know, is a proven election winner. Well, he was a proven election winner. There's no doubt about it. When it comes to campaigning, it's difficult to know of a better communicator such as him. He has a, an energy, a zest, a determination. But that's winning elections and campaigns is very difficult, different to governing and making detailed forensic decisions. That, I'm afraid, is what was missing in number 10. There was an absolute lack of discipline. Not only that, we sort of lost our way. Mm. We tried to recreate legislation to protect Owen Patterson, a former member of parliament, who clearly was in the wrong, and yet what number 10 was trying to do was cover up for that and, and take the, you know, the, the, uh, the members of parliament with them. And that was just completely wrong. That was not the correct way to use number 10 and its power and its relationship with with, uh, with Parliament. How worried are you on the big issues then that Vladimir Putin will react, will respond to this latest EU agreement on a ban, admittedly a partial ban, on Russian oil imports? So let's just make it very clear. Uh, Russia is winning at the moment in Ukraine and whether it's fatigue on the subject itself uh, we need to lean much more in to make sure Ukraine does more than not lose, but actually can defeat 
the Russians in the Donbass region. Otherwise, Putin survives, no matter how big the sanctions are. Now, the sanctions have been impressive. Long term, they will have an impact. And it is important that countries work together. But right now, I remain frustrated that you have this fire in Ukraine, which could easily spread elsewhere. And yet NATO, the most formidable military alliance in the world, is sitting on its hands. I hope that's something that uh, members will reflect on when they meet in Madrid very soon. You say NATO is sitting on its hands. Would you like to see it, it, it do more? What, what exactly would you like NATO to, 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 to do? Well, we have to be careful and watch that escalatory ladder. We don't want things to go out of control. But there, was a, there is a country, Ukraine, a democratic country that's been invaded. And are we going to stand by and allow that to happen? You know, otherwise, this could be 1938, 1913, uh, 1939 again. We need to recognize where this will go if we don't support the Ukrainians um, more efficiently. And that's the NATO construct could actually lean into this to make sure that we assist Ukrainians in giving them the high-caliber um, weapon systems they need, particularly long-range artillery providing them with intelligence information as well. Uh, mm. More importantly, keeping the port of Odessa open. This is something that we could do, creating a humanitarian corridor so the rest of the world can be fed. Ukraine is a breadbasket of Europe, and we're now only starting to appreciate that with the rise of cost of living, recognising Ukraine's role in keeping us uh, all fed. But, but again, Tobias, and you know better than, than we do on this point, President Biden has said no to long-range rockets um, in Ukraine, you know, things that could potentially hit Russian soil, for example. Um, and the idea of trying to break that blockade at sea, I mean, that is intervention. That is an escalation, is it not? So, I mean, that's a kind okay. of drumbeat towards, towards war, no? Yes, and this is exactly what Putin wants us to believe. That's why he keeps mentioning, you know, his nuclear arsenal and so on. But you're dealing with the fact that we're being spooked by what Russia says. I'm saying there's Ukrainian territorial waters and international waters. What has any of that got to do with Russia, other than the fact that we are now scared, too timid of Russia? We've become so risk-averse. And we need to rekindle that Cold War statecraft, if you like, to be able to stand up to Russia and say, actually... For the benefit of countries like Egypt, of Lebanon, of, of, of uh, uh, Tunisia and places like that, indeed across Europe as well, the price of grain has gone up 60% in the year. Why? Because of what's going on in Ukraine. And if we keep the port open, get the silos emptied, allow the farmers to harvest, get those crops moving, then the price will go down. But if Russia has its way and finishes off in Donbass, moves along from Mariupol and takes the port of Odessa, and pummels it in the way that it did with Mariupol. Ukraine becomes landlocked. Putin then wins, and he goes to fight another day in, let's say, two or three years' time. Isn't the reality that with with gains uh, in Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, Ukraine is going to have to concede some some territory in the east, perhaps perhaps the whole of the Donbass? Okay, I mean that is, if I may, defeatist talk. That we can't uh, even suggest that we can't go to the negotiation table. Otherwise, you are. Uh, announcing to the world, and China is watching very, very carefully, that if anybody invades another country and they've got enough might, then actually they can get away with it. So where does that take authoritarianism across the world? Where does that take the West's ability to stand up and defend uh, international values? We, you know, we're at a juncture here, a turning point in our history. What happens now in the next few months, indeed couple of years, will determine how the next decade plays out. And at the moment, we're far too reluctant to lean into this.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, we've just been speaking to Conservative MP and Chair of the Commons Defence Committee, Tobias Elwood. He says we're being far too timid in dealing with Vladimir Putin and our response to the war in Ukraine will determine the next decade. Well, flowing from that war, the energy crisis here in Britain, the impact on oil and gas prices globally threatens a worse energy crisis for the UK this winter. Now, the government is said to be in talks with Centrica to try to reopen the country's biggest natural gas storage site. Well, Ofgen estimates that 12 million people will be fuel poor this winter and having to make terrible choices, uh, according to our next guest. Well, earlier on Bloomberg Radio, Caroline and Stephen Carroll spoke to the chairman of Utilita Energy, Derek Licorice, about how many of their customers are under pressure and how much the Chancellor's package will help. We know that these, the sector we serve are, are dominantly all prepayment customers who are skewed towards the lower income deciles. Uh, And at the moment, we would say probably half of our consumers will have difficulty in paying bills, but it will be a lot more than that come the 1st of October, because customers will then experience for the first time in cold weather the impact of the last two price cap increases. And that's going to increase winter bills from October this year by 119%. So I agree with uh, Jonathan Brearley that we will see 12 million Uh, households over the UK. There are 28.3 million households in the UK. And of that, 12 million will be fuel poor. And to be fuel poor means you live in a cold home, you're more likely to suffer from respiratory illness, and the list goes on and on. So there there will be choices to be made by so many consumers about whether they can heat or eat. But the Chancellor has done something, did it last week, where we've brought about uh, 20 Overall, there's 30, uh, 35 billion pounds have been brought to try and help customers mm-hmm. through the problems in being able to pay for their energy bills. Derek, I'm interested in terms of how much your customers are reducing consumption as prices are going up. Are people making those tough decisions and are you seeing that reflected in the amount of energy they're consuming? We've already seen uh, reductions in energy consuming. Um, It reflects uh, in what we call self-disconnections because uh, our customers are technically enabled. Uh, They top up their meters to uh, ensure continuity of supply. And we have seen uh, problems with customers who have no money. Uh, We run a, a team called Extra Care. And the Extra Care team are there to help consumers who are in real difficulty. And we've seen an increase, an increase in calls to that part of our business by over 100%. So that is a real problem for an awful lot of customers. And we do our best to help them. We give them advanced vents for their meters. And by that, I mean, we can electronically download to their meters some credits that will enable them to get through a tough period until their next paycheck or benefits check comes through. But yes, this is really hurting. But don't forget the the next big increase, the real one that's going to hurt the most is from the 1st of October. 
where okay. bills will increase on average to £2,800 a year. So if that was the chairman of Utilita Energy, Derek Licorice, speaking pretty stark there, saying that people, uh, his customers, sometimes just don't have money to pay for these bills in terms of this cost of living crisis. Uh, so with energy bills soaring, inflation rising to the highest in 40 years, financial well-being and mental health, of course, are connected. Well, the money and pension service say that more than half of people who've experienced a mental health problem in the, in the past three years feel anxious when thinking about their finances. Well, let's discuss this now with Connor Darcy, Head of Research and Policy at Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. Connor, thanks so much for joining us on the programme. Clearly, uh, there is a a big problem with uh, the cost of living at the moment. Lots of people have have money trouble, which is probably set to get worse. And we know that many people, particularly uh, in the wake of the pandemic, suffer from mental health difficulties. Why is it important that these two things uh, are tackled together? How, How are they connected? Yeah, unfortunately, they often form what we call a a toxic cycle where I think most people who've struggled financially will be aware that it can take a toll on you when you're worried about how are you going to pay for that next bill, when you're thinking about some of those really difficult trade-offs of, you know, whether you pay for food or whether you pay for energy. That obviously puts a huge amount of burden and stress on you. But there's also the other side when your mental health isn't good, when so much of your your brain capacity and, and kind of mental space is being taken up by those concerns. Making the right decisions, you know, reaching out for help, doing budgeting, all these sorts of of tasks that help you stay in control financially just become that much harder and over time that can really put people in quite difficult circumstances. Connor, you heard there from a utility company boss, um, how much are energy firms doing to help customers? I mean, he put it very starkly that many customers of utility, but other firms have said the same, E.ON, uh, and we know from um, the energy regulator Ofgem that it is millions of people who are going to face this, this difficulty. How much can and are the energy firms doing for customers? So I think it's it's something of a mixed picture. And we, we saw this too during the pandemic when there was a lot of support out there when government and regulators and firms did start to, you know, um, uh, exercise more discretion if people had fallen behind on, on payments. I think the message when, when we do research with people who have mental health problems, the experiences they have are often the firms will get in touch and they'll let them know that prices are increasing. But it, it's often quite functional. And what we find makes a really big difference is when the messages coming from firms are supportive and they are saying there is support here for you, you know, the extra extra help team that um, uh, the, the gentleman was talking about, that there are people and options available to you if you are behind. But too often that message doesn't come through clearly enough. And again, as I said, when so much of your um, brain space is taken up by worrying, when those messages aren't repeated and clear and supportive and you just see your energy firm as another firm who's trying to get money out of you on the the long list of other creditors that you might have, it can be really hard. So making sure that support is really prominently advertised and that people, you know, the the staff in those firms understand that when your mental health isn't great, that you might need some extra support, that really does make a big difference. So just tell us more about some of the things you're you're campaigning for for firms to do. You call it uh, being mental health being mentally mental health accessible don't you that's what does that what does that mean in 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 actual terms 
Yeah, so for instance, um, it, it kind of runs all the way through. And, you know, for some people, they'll have a mental health problem. They will tell their energy firm that and support will get in place. But for lots of people, they either won't know that they have a mental health problem or they won't feel comfortable sharing that information. So a lot of it is just about getting the general processes right. So for instance, if you know, the only way to get in touch with your energy firm or any company, uh, if you're struggling, is to pick up the phone, that can be a really big barrier for lots of people. Roughly about three quarters of people with a mental health problem really, really struggle to use uh, a particular kind of um, contact channel. And for lots of people, that is the phone. So if, if you're offering that support, but it's only accessible if you're able to pick up the phone, spend ages on, on hold, building up that anxiety and nerves that lots of ex- people experience, that can be really tough. So making sure that help is available, you know, through web chat, through email, through, you know, face-to-face, if you're, if you're a bank branch, say, all those sorts of things can make a really big difference. And then it goes through to the training and the knowledge that customer service representatives have. Do they understand that, you know, if, if someone's struggling financially and mentally, that, you know, repeating information can be really useful, not expecting everyone to, you know, just one phone call to solve all the problems or that people can remember all that information. So, again, following up with communication can make a really a really big difference. And then the really big one for us is around when a customer has fallen behind and when firms are, you know, chasing debt. Mm. Now, obviously, firms, you know, they need to make sure the money is coming in. That's how they stay afloat. But there are such different ways that they can approach that, and it really does make a huge difference. And, you know, the consequences when, when they get that wrong really can be dire. And we've heard some really difficult stories for from people where, Letters that felt aggressive or threatening or harassing from firms made people, you know, start to think about taking their own life for some really drastic um, circumstances. So when firms, again, get that messaging right and say, you know, this is the amount you owe, but we know things are really tough. And here are the options and support that's available. That really can make a massive difference if you're you're struggling. Do you think that things have... have moved uh, in the UK in terms of how we deal with mental health. There was such a tide of, of ob- obvious kind of mental health fallout from the pandemic. Do you think that actually the public's expectations have radically changed? You know, the government um, gave out obviously, you know, money to support people while, whilst firms were sort of not operational. The Chancellor's just announced another huge multi-billion pound, um, you know, package of measures, £650 effectively for the poorest house across the country have the expectations changed in terms of how much is going to flow from government because there was a great deal of resistance on the conservative government to try to help individual voters but but do you think that things have shifted i i, I do i think this is again with both the pandemic and the cost of living they're just such broad impacts across the country there's you know so few people who've who haven't been affected by this in some way we did some some polling recently and found that basically three quarters of us have had to change in some way uh, how we how we live our lives, like cutting back on energy use or other essential spending. So this is such a broad impact. It really was, you know, clear that the government needed to act, and we definitely welcome the, the steps they they took um, last week. There, there is then that 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 extra responsibility on firms who, as you said, you know, they did get lots of support from the government during the pandemic to keep going. The extra support. To directly to customers at the moment is obviously helping money keep flowing through into into energy firms and others. So the more that they can do, I think, will just reflect that you know that they get this, that they get how big a deal it is, that they get how big a responsibility they have for their customers to make sure that they are doing everything to support people in this really tough time. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.